As I mentioned earlier, and as you already know, tonight's a special night. Let me tell you a story, uh, just a little tale of how I came to know who Julie Gossick was. When I was little, I was born, I was born in north central Montana, and my mom was a believer. And uh, I remember her doing this study, and she said, boy, this is a great study. And I just, I've gotten so much out of this. I've been through it several times. Lo and behold, that study uh, was one by Julie called Precious in God's Sight. Thank you. I think she'll talk about that later. But I thought, who's Julie Gossick? Is she uh, kind of like Elizabeth Elliot or Elizabeth George? She writes a lot of books and studies, and she lives in southern Texas or California. And I didn't know. And I came to college, and God got a hold of my life, and he saved me. Uh, out of sin and death in college, and I started coming and directing me at Grace Bible Church. And lo and behold, I met Julie Gossick, and I found out she was a sinner saved by God's grace, and she dwelt in Bozeman, Montana. And she's our guest tonight. Uh, and as I was thinking, as Annie and I were thinking about tonight, uh, this is really going to put some legs on, some feet on James 1 and 2. Uh, James 1, verse 2. And I thought of this scripture as well, and I'll read it. To you. It's First Peter chapter 1. After Peter gets through with his introduction, he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith, for salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though being tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the honor and the glory or in the revelation of Jesus Christ. And that's our goal. That's I know that's jo Julie's and Ray's humble goal tonight. We want Christ to be exalted and praised and his name to be great here. Uh, if you're having trouble finding a seat in the back, you won't be able to see now because it's dark. There we go. But if you're having a, trouble finding a seat, go ahead and come around to the sides. Uh, make, we'll make room. There's lots of room in here. I'm going to let Ray introduce Julie to us. Hi, everyone. It's my privilege to introduce your speaker to you tonight, and it's hard to narrow it down to a, a couple of minutes because I could go on for, for hours um, talking about Julie. But uh, I met Julie um, 30 years ago um, on the high school cross-country team in Anaconda, Montana. Go Copperheads. Uh, she was the cute little freshman girl, and I was the senior boy. Um, that's where it all started. Um, anyway, um, to make a long story short, we became high school sweethearts for a little while because I was just a senior. Um, after my senior year, I came to school over here in Bozeman at Montana State University. And uh, our relationship continued as she went through high school, sometimes off, sometimes on, back and forth. But uh, when she graduated from high school, I thought, oh, she'll come to MSU. But guess where she decided to go? Yeah. <laughs> the University of Montana. Um, she, was, uh, she was a runner. She walked on the cross-country and track team over there. Um, I st we still continued our relationship. Um, a year went by while she was doing that, and I was over here working on my degree. And uh, financially, I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't making it traveling to Missoula every weekend to visit her. 
Um, wasn't just a financial decision, but I thought I better ask this girl to, to marry me because I loved her a lot and I wanted to save her from the University of Montana as well. <laughs> our, our family kind of calls uh, Missoula Nineveh, but anyway, that's just... <clears throat> so anyway, um, she said yes when I asked her to marry me and um, I was thankful for that. She came over here to Bozeman and we continued, continued going to school and um, working on our degrees. Um, I finished my degree in fish and wildlife management and wasn't able to find any work in that at that time. So I got into education. My dad was an educator in Anaconda, and I thought, man, that would be good. And Julie was ele- elementary ed, so um, we continued working on our education degrees and, and, and finished those up. And, uh, boy, I could, like I said, I could talk for, for a long time. Um, I wanted to mention that I was 22 years old when Julie, uh, when we got married, and Julie was only 19. Um, we were glad we we were married young. It's been it's been fun. Uh, we celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary um, in September. Interesting wedding anniversary because it was the the day that Julie was uh, came down sick and ended up in the emergency room and we spent our anniversary together in the emergency room up at Bozeman Deaconess um, it was yeah we, we hadn't planned that but, but God is he knows um, another thing I wanted to mention was um, Julie went on to get her master's degree in education and uh, curriculum and instruction so she's got a master's degree from Montana State University. And um, it is with my highest honor that I want to introduce my best friend and the wife of my youth, uh, Julie Gossick. So why don't you come on up, Julie? Um, we wanted you to show the first slide on, the, on her, Julie's PowerPoint so we could also introduce you to our family a little bit, give you some context. So here, here we are. Um, our oldest son, Landon, is there on the right. And uh, he's, he's 21. He married Ashley on December 14th. She's standing there next to him. And then our second oldest son is Anthony, over on the left, on the far left. And he graduated from high school last year and is going up to Montana Wilderness School of the Bible this year. And then Eli is our youngest son. He's 16, and he's a sophomore at Heritage Christian School here in Bozeman. And that is where both uh, myself and Julie teach. I teach junior high and high school math and science at Heritage, and Julie is the librarian at Heritage. So with that, I'll let her tell the rest of the story. Thanks, honey. (laughs) Made me a little nervous knowing that Ray was going to introduce me. He knows all my deepest, darkest things, and he could tell a lot of bad stories about me. I was afraid he was going to blow my cover tonight, so thanks (laughs) for not. I want to thank the Cross Life um, leadership for having me here tonight. Um, It's a real privilege um, to be able to speak to you and to give a reason for the hope that is in me. And before we begin, I, I just want to say that I don't feel like I have a particular wisdom more than anybody else to be able to speak to you tonight. Um, I just have found myself in a situation that none of us would choose, that many of us fear, 
and that all of us have wondered how we would respond if we were in the same situation. I simply pray that I can be a source of encouragement to you in some way as I share about God's faithfulness and his care and what we're going through right now. I hope I don't need my Kleenex or my reading glasses tonight. <laughs> Let's make sure this is working here. For those of you who don't know, Cross Life has been in a series called Imago Day. Um, if you're interested, you can get the podcast um, of the excellent messages that Tanner and Andy and Matt have taught on this topic through this school year. In the meantime, I'll try and catch up to speed for those of you who haven't been a part of it. Um, Imago Day. I admit I, have, I had to figure out how to say that. Imago Dei is a Latin phrase that means image of God. Imago Dei refers to the fact that all of mankind was created in God's image, according to Genesis 1.26, when the Godhead said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. And since we've been created in God's image, there's a purposeful design for us to represent and reflect the image of God in our daily lives. And so I've been excited to hear that this school year, Cross Life, has been studying the character and attributes of God to understand more about him and to accurately um, represent him. It's a study of knowing how God impacts our daily life and how to represent and reflect him through the, through the moments of daily life. Um, I can't think of a better way to spend a year studying understand that some of the cross-life groups are um, using the book, The Knowledge of the Holy, as a reference on the character and attributes of God. And it is one of my favorite books, so allow me just uh, a moment to underscore some of what you've already been learning by sharing just a few of my favorite quotes from the book. Um, some of them may be your favorite quotes as well, and most of them come from the preface and the first chapter of the book, um, which is entitled, Why We Must Think Rightly About God. I won't really comment very much on these quotes, but I'll let you ponder and digest them for yourself. And then after I share these quotes, I just want to tell you just what's going on with me medically, and then specifically how knowing the character and attributes of God is impacting my life right now. So here's the first quote. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. It is impossible to keep our moral practices sound and our inward attitudes right while our idea of God is erroneous or inadequate. The man who comes to a right belief about God is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems. Among the sins to which the human heart is prone, Hardly any other is more hateful to God than idolatry, for idolatry is at bottom a slander on his character. The idolatrous heart assumes that God is other than he is and substitutes for the true God, one made after its own likeness. There's some important thoughts to ponder in these quotes. I would encourage you to get the book and to contemplate them some more. So I mentioned that I was going to tell you what's going on with, with us medically. Um, it all started last September. There I was, minding my own business. I was getting started on a new school year as librarian at Heritage Christian School. Um, I was doing a little running and biking, lifting some weights, cooking and house cleaning, and gearing up to teach a Bible study for women. 
Little did I know there was a raging battle going on in my body that was about to present itself in a more, most furious manner. To make a long story short, I ended up in the emergency room with severe abdominal pain. An initial test revealed a large mass in my abdomen, and the doctors thought that I had ovarian cancer. Over the course of two days, my symptoms presented themselves in an even more strange manner, and the doctors began to explore other diagnoses. As my condition grew worse, it was determined that I needed emergency surgery, and so I was transported by ambulance to the Billings Hospital, which was followed by a four-hour surgery, a week's hospital stay, and an 11-page pathology report that revealed stage four cancer of the appendix. Our family was shocked by the diagnosis, to say the least. We had not even heard of appendiceal cancer. We have learned that, this, um, that people with this kind of cancer are often not diagnosed until it reaches advanced stages because it grows asymptomatic. We've also learned that this type of cancer is very rare. Only one in a million people get it. And only about 500 people in the United States are diagnosed with it each year. Not only is appendiceal cancer rare, the cells involved in my body are even more rare, and the pathology presents itself in a unique manner, which one specialist called weird. Additionally, the cancer has traveled outside the abdominal cavity and is in my lung cavity, which according to the specialists comprises only about 6% of their cases. Humanly speaking, my prognosis for a long life is not good. Since this cancer is so rare, we've consulted specialists in both Spokane, um, Washington, and at MD Anderson in Houston, Texas, just trying to wrap our minds around my diagnosis and try and figure out what our options are. There are two treatments for this type of cancer. One is a systemic chemotherapy, just a regular chemotherapy, and the other is a um, high-risk surgery called HIPEC which includes removing all visible cancer and some organs, as well as a 90-minute heated chemotherapy wash of the internal abdomen. You can Google HIPEC if you like. Um, from a scientific point of view, the procedure is rather fascinating. Some people thought that the doctor who invented it was crazy. Anyway, because of the aggressive nature of some of my cancer cells, the specialist at MD Anderson recommended that I begin treatment with this systemic chemotherapy that I could do here in Bozeman. Um, the cancer's behavior and response to the chemotherapy would then determine if I was a candidate for the HIPEC surgery. So I had my first round of chemotherapy the day after Christmas, and as of today, I've only had three treatments due to very low blood counts and also um, two bouts with a collapsed right lung. So at this point, the doctors at MD Anderson, they've actually determined um, that my cancer is, quote, behaving itself better than what they thought it would, and that I am indeed a candidate for the HIPEC surgery. And so for now, we've suspended the chemotherapy treatments, and we're trying to get my body stronger for the surgery, which is scheduled for March 24th, less than a month, in Houston. Um, but we do hold that loosely because uh, my right lung is still partially deflated, and the surgeons won't operate until that's healed. So we're learning to be flexible and take things as they come. So the pictures you see on the screen are part of our journey so far. Um, the picture of the top left is from September when I had surgery in Billings. Next to me is Ray's sister, Janine. And yes, that's a nasty and painful NG tube hanging from my nose. 
The picture of Ray and I was taken at MD Anderson um, Cancer Center in December, and the photo, photo on the bottom was taken in January at the Cancer Center here in Bozeman. I was sitting in the infusion chair having round two chemotherapy, and sitting in my lap is sweet Alistair Anderson, um, the three-year-old daughter of a friend of mine, and Alistair is also battling cancer. So that, in a nutshell, is what's going on with me medically. And now we ask the question, what does all this have to do with Imago Day? What does my diagnosis and prognosis have to do with the fact that I was created in God's image with a purpose to reflect and represent the invisible God? And how, practically speaking, can I do that, given this difficult situation? As we begin to answer those questions, I want to refer you to two different handouts that are available on the back table there. Um, The first handout is called The Character and Attributes of the Godhead, and the second is called The Person and the Work of Jesus Christ. And these documents are a condensed version of my own studies on the person of God. Um, These documents each contain 31 three-by-five formatted cards that define a specific attribute of God and the scriptural evidence of that attribute. I wrote the first set of cards, the character and attributes of the Godhead, during a time of trial quite a few years ago. I was a much younger believer then, and I didn't know my God very well. I was angry with him because of my circumstances at that time, and I couldn't understand what he was doing. And so the study of his character allowed me to trust him and to grow in my love for him more, despite my circumstances. So I condensed my study into a three-by-five format so that I could just continually to review his person. And I also made a version for our young sons um, so they could know God. And so Ray and I have used these cards in parenting, Sunday school, at Heritage where we teach, and they've been helpful for Bible studies and discipleship and counseling as well as our own personal growth. Since they were so helpful, Ray encouraged me to write some more of them, and I kind of dabbled in that project over the years, but I didn't really make much progress in it until just a couple years ago through another time of trial. Um, I was struggling with some health issues that are likely related to my cancer in some way, and I was starting to recover, and I was still weak to do very much, um, but I could read and study. And so I decided to focus specifically on the person and work of Jesus because of my fellowship with him during my illness. It was sweet and intimate. And so the second study is just a, or the second set of cards is just a study of Jesus, who he is and what he does. And then I've started a third set of cards entitled The Ministry of the Holy Spirit, which I hope someday the Lord will allow me to finish. You should know that with these cards, I didn't intend to slice and dice the triune Godhead by, um, By writing the second set of cards, it was not my plan to make a set of about God, the Father, Jesus, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Really, that first set encompasses all all of the triune Godhead. And I have to say that these attribute cards are probably the most important study and writing that I've done. I've compiled them in a resource called Cardiology 101, Tools for the Trade, which provides practical tools for applying Proverbs 4.23. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of life. And this is a study that I was preparing to teach this last fall when I ended up in the emergency room. It's still in draft form, but usable, and I believe the Resource Center here at Grace has some of those um, draft versions on hand. 
These attributes um, provide a practical way to meditate on and rejoice in the person of God. There are 31, one for each day of the month. Ray and I read them together, night after night, month after month. And I encourage you to get these handouts and use them to grow in your knowledge and love for God. There's a place where you can, there's only a limited number of them, so there's a place where you can sign up for them, whether you want them in paper format, cardstock format, or digital format. Tanner can email them to you. So feel free to copy them and use them, pass them on to others. And I think it's kind of neat, as a dear friend pointed out, that as we use these cards, that many people are meditating and contemplating and worshiping God for the same attribute each day. Kind of neat, huh? As we meditate on these attributes, I think it's important to note that all of God's attributes work in tandem. They're intermingled and um, dependent upon each other. He's not merely a collection of various attributes. God is a total being with every attribute permeating his whole person simultaneously. So focusing on one attribute may be um, easy for our finite minds, but we must take into account that all of his attributes work together. So allow me just a few more thoughts about Imago Dei and the attributes of God before I tell you how um, some of his specific attributes are at work in my life. Since all people were created Imago Dei in the image of God, that very fact means that all people reflect God to a certain degree. Even though all people Imago Dei, not all people Imago Dei to the fullest extent, because that perfect image was marred and warped when man chose to sin. Since then, the nature of mankind is fallen, and we naturally Imago me. <laughs> We reflect the image of ourselves, sinners. So unless you have a personal and intimate relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, then you are limited in the way that you reflect God's image in your life. Only those who come to Jesus for salvation have the unique opportunity for the life of God to be diffused in and through them. Those who are saved from their sin by the blood of Jesus are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and thus have the power of God to manifest his attributes and be conformed to the image of Jesus. So in speaking about manifesting his attributes, I won't get too technical here, but in theological terms, God has what are called communicable attributes and incommunicable attributes. Generally speaking, communicable attributes are those attributes which God allows us to share with him. That is, there are attributes that we, as children of God, have the opportunity to display, to manifest, and to live out in our lives as we rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. And so examples of these attributes are God's love, um, his goodness, his mercy, righteousness, his wisdom, and patience. In contrast, incommunicable attributes are those attributes of God that are not necessarily shared by us. What I mean is that we are not God. Even though we are created in his likeness, we are not exactly like him. He is God, and we are not. So some examples of these incommunicable attributes are his omnipresence. He is everywhere at all times. We're not. Also his omniscience. He is all-knowing. We're not all-knowing, although we'd like to be at times. And another is that God is sovereign. He rules over all. Clearly, we don't rule over all. So these are attributes that God doesn't share with us. So here's the point with that, is that even though we don't share God's incommunicable attributes like sovereignty or omnipotence, we can still image or reflect his character 
by displaying complete trust in those attributes. Let me say that again. Even though we don't share God's incommunicable attributes like sovereignty or omnipotence, we can still image or reflect his character by displaying complete trust in those attributes. When we know him for who he is and live like we believe who he is, then we reflect him to others, and that brings him glory. I would say, too, that it's not merely enough to just study and know and appreciate who God is, his person and his attributes. It's only when we take great joy in his person and his doings in our life that we bring him praise and he's glorified. Jonathan Edwards said that God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. When those that see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. I want to read that quote again. God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by its being rejoiced in. When those that see it, his glory, who he is, delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. I think of Psalm 511 that says, Let those who love your name be joyful in you. And so studying and meditating on the character and attributes of God is a worthy endeavor, but understanding his person is only a means to enjoy him. That is the objective, to rejoice in our God. And I have to say that knowing the character and attributes of God is what is sustaining me right now. But I also have to say that it's not merely knowing God that is sustaining me and giving me an unexplainable peace and a permeating joy. It is delighting in his person and his doings that is satisfying, strengthening, and anchoring me in this violent storm. Truly, the joy of the Lord is my strength. There are five attributes in particular that are special, especially meaningful to me right now, ones that I rejoice in and that give me strength. Three of them come from the character and attributes of the Godhead cards. God is sovereign. God is good. Whoops, sorry about that. Let me get there. There you go. Um, and God is Yahweh, Yireh. The other two come from the person and work of Jesus Christ cards. Jesus is head of the body, and Jesus gives aid to those tested by adversity. So I'm just going to read through these cards and tell you how God is allowing me to delight in and trust in his character right now. So the first attribute is that God is sovereign. And the definition is, God rules the entire universe. His perfect plans and purposes are always accomplished and can never be thwarted by anyone or anything, including evil. His supreme rule is always consistent with the totality of his divine character. So when we think of sovereignty, sovereignty, we must take into account all of who God is. Sovereignty is a multifaceted attribute that enjoins all other attributes. In God's sovereignty, he is good. He is sovereignly wise, sovereignly kind, and sovereignly just. Yes, God has supreme rule, but his rule is not arbitrary. It is consistent with his whole person. That's something to keep in mind as we read these verses. Job 42.2, 2, 
I know that you can do everything and that no purpose of yours can be withheld from you. Psalm 33:11, The counsel of the Lord stands forever and the plans of his heart to all generations. And Daniel 4:35, All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? So how do I rejoice in God's sovereignty? I rejoice that God was sovereign when that first teeny tiny cell went haywire and became cancerous. He was not surprised in any way. His perfect plans and purposes are always accomplished. God was sovereign the day that I ended up in the emergency room and it was raised in my 25th wedding anniversary of all the days. But my God is sovereign and good and kind, and how can I say to him, what have you done? Ray and I can rejoice in God's sovereignty while asking ourselves, is this really us? Really? One in a million? Rare cells? Unusual pathology? Six percent? God's plans stand, and he is sovereignly kind and wise. We are being handled by a sovereign wisdom that is perfect. We don't have to understand it, but we can trust and, yes, rejoice in it. I trust that my days are numbered according to the sovereign rule of my God, and I rest upon the words of Psalm 119.16 that say, And in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. And also Job 12.10 that says, In the Lord's hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. I am confident that I will not live one less day or take one less breath than what God has ordained for my life, cancer or no cancer. And I am confident that I won't have one single unfinished task. For our sovereign God has prepared all of my works beforehand that I should walk in them. God is sovereign. We can choose to embrace and rejoice in in his sovereign plans, or we can demand our own plans and resist him. How foolish to lean on our own understanding, our own human wisdom, and dispute with our beautiful sovereign king. Daily, we make the choice to embrace his sovereignty, whether in big things or little things, a spilt cup of coffee, a co-worker's bad attitude, slipping on the ice, a bad diagnosis, or just a bad hair day. I don't know about you, but I want to rejoice in everything that my God is doing. If you're interested, I wrote a Bible study for women on pursuing a gentle and quiet spirit. Tanner referred to it earlier. And it's a study on a proper response to God's sovereignty. Um, The Resource Center has some of those available here. The next attribute is that God is good. This attribute obviously dovetails with God's sovereignty. Um, I'll just read it to you. God's very essence encompasses all that is right and true and kind. He always acts in a way that is pleasant, beautiful, and excellent. His goodness toward his creation is always profitable, useful, and beneficial. The opposite of goodness is to mistreat, to do evil or harm, 
or to do injustice or wrong. God is never unkind. Psalm 31:19. Oh, how great is your goodness, which you have laid up for those who fear you, which you have prepared for those who trust in you, in your presence of the sons of men. And Nahum 1.7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in a day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. I can trust in his goodness and believe that where we are right now is his very best plan for me and for my family. I can trust that God's plan is useful and beneficial. How can I say that? That sounds crazy. But by faith, I can believe in what I cannot see, that God's goodness, that in God's goodness, this is for my benefit and for my profit. It is useful and good. I can trust that God is good when Ray and I cry and hold each other and miss each other already. I remember that God is good when he allowed Ray and I an amazing pre-anniversary trip to Hawaii last June. Indeed, shall we only accept good and not adversity from the Lord? Both are part of his goodness. God is still good when I consider the fact that my husband has already lost both his mother and his father to cancer. And when I tearfully ask, why him, Lord? Why Ray? God is good when I fill out medical forms that show no history of cancer in the bloodline on my side of the family. And the doctors look at my paperwork and remark at how healthy I am, despite the fact that I have stage 4 cancer. I remember that God is good when I struggle with the sin of envy, seeing gray-haired couples growing old together, and I want the same for Ray and I. God is good to allow me to see my sons grow into young men, to have the privilege to raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, and to see them to young adulthood. God is good even if I never get to hold my grandbabies and read stories to them and play Play-Doh and bake cookies with them. He is still good. I must remember to not impose my own definition of good upon God. His goodness has an eternal perspective that I do not have. He sees from the beginning to the end of time. I do not. Only he can know what is good and what is not good. To make judgment on his goodness with my mere human vantage point is wrong. By faith, I must believe that what he is doing is good. Another attribute, or really a title, is that Jesus is head of the body, which is the church, not the building, but the people who are saved by his blood. I think I'm going to need my Kleenex and my reading glasses (laughs) for this one. God the Father appointed Jesus the Son as the head of the body, which is the church. Jesus is the exalted leader and ruler of the church and the one to whom the church is subject. His intimacy with and love for the body compels his tender care for her. He nourishes and cherishes the body 
in order to produce growth in purity and holiness that the body may be a glorious reflection of himself. Ephesians 1, and 23 says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And Colossians 2.19, holding fast to the head from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase, which is from God. That Jesus is the head of the body doesn't just mean a position of leadership. It communicates a care for the body that nourishes and cherishes and has its best in mind. You can see how God's goodness is woven into this title. And so I remember that Jesus is head, caring for his body, when his hurting children grieve the potential loss of a friend, a sister, a daughter, a mom, and a wife. Indeed, we weep together. Jesus is head, loving his own, when he moves people to pray and pray again for its hurting members. Jesus, as head, has prepared works for the body to walk in, making meals, giving rides, picking up prescriptions, giving generous gifts, sitting in the chemotherapy room, praying, speaking encouraging words, all so that the body would be built up. Jesus' head of the body, growing us up when I hear ways that my brothers and sisters' faith is growing because of what we are going through. We also hear of some having opportunity to share their faith in Christ because of my diagnosis. What a privilege to be joined and knit together as the body of Christ. We are unified with Jesus as our exalted head. It's been beautiful to watch every part doing its share, using the gifts and talents and resources to cause growth of the body that it may be edified together in love. I believe that my cancer diagnosis is a gift for the body. One that we all need to steward as unto him. Certainly it's for my sanctification and for the sanctification of my family, and, but it's also for the sanctification of the body as a whole. There are things that he is doing in your life because of what we are going through. And it's beautiful to see God's work in the body. Another title for God is Yahweh Yireh. Yahweh is the personal name for God, and Yireh is the Hebrew, term, Hebrew word that means to see. And so this title for God means um, the Lord who sees will provide. Yireh is um, from the Hebrew word ra, which means to see, to look at, and to perceive. God has already foreseen all of our needs, past, present, and future, and has graciously provided for them. God is willing and able to meet every need of his beloved. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? And 2 Corinthians 9.8, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. And Philippians 4.19, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus.
I can rejoice that God sees what we need. I hardly know what we need, but God knows what we need now and in the days ahead. Not only does he see our needs, but he generously provides for them in the perfect way and in the perfect time to increase our faith. He does not begrudge his provision, but makes it sufficient and even abundant because that's who he is. And so when I think of the God who provides, I remember that God will liberally give his wisdom as we make critical decisions along the way. God will abundantly provide for our extra expenses, travel plans, loss of work. God will continue to take care of us through pending changes in medical care options and insurance companies. And I must remember there's no need to worry. I rejoice and trust that God will supply all my physical and spiritual needs when I become too sick to care for myself, too weak to read my Bible, and too weak to pray. I can rejoice that God will lavishly provide for my husband whatever he needs, whether I am there or not. I take joy that God will lovingly supply for my sons when they need a mom's care and counsel, when they choose their brides, and when they become parents for the first time. I need not give in to sinful fear, becoming anxious and worrying that we won't have what we need. I can fully trust and rejoice in God as our provider. The last attribute I want to share with you is that Jesus gives aid to those tested by adversity. It's really um, less of an attribute and more of just what Jesus does, and it really encourages my heart. Let me read it. Jesus gives aid to those tested by adversity. The Greek word for aid in Hebrews 2.18 is boetheo, from boe meaning a cry or exclamation, and theo meaning to run. This word literally means to run at a cry. Jesus hears the cries of the sufferer and compassionately runs alongside to uphold, assist, and help. The opposite of boetheo is to frustrate or hinder. Jesus will never add hindrance or frustration to our suffering. Don't you love that? I love that word, boetheo, to run at a cry. This is figurative, of course, but it accurately portrays his immediate and compassionate assistance as we suffer. And the reason for his compassion is that he also suffered much more than we will ever suffer. He knows, he understands, and he comforts. He gives aid, running at our cry for help. So let me read these verses. Hebrews 2, 16 and 18. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham, to people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid, here's our word, boitheo, he is able to aid those who are tempted. And Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. 
makes sense. Many of you have had difficult trials too, and when we're hurting, we don't run to uncaring people for strength and encouragement. Instead, we're drawn to those who understand, who have experienced suffering. They bring us hope that we can make it through the difficulty. Well, Jesus, all the more so. He endured the greatest suffering ever. He was tempted and tested in every way. The God who suffers, the God of all compassion. Jesus ran at our cry for help when we heard my diagnosis and read the grave pathology report. He too faced death, and so he has compassion on our sorrow. Jesus ran at my cry for help when I sat in the chemotherapy chair for the first time, when the nurse flipped the switch that began pumping toxic drugs into my body. My eyes welled up with tears, and fear surged through my mind. He ran at my cry. Christ was also tempted with fear, and so he could sympathize with me. Jesus ran at my cry for help when I was in pain from my lung collapsing and had chest tubes painfully inserted between my ribs. He, too, was pierced in his side and faced painful physical suffering and thus has compassion on my pain. He runs at a cry when I grieve the physical marring that happens as a result of this disease and its treatment. People often become unrecognizable. I already bear many scars from various surgeries and procedures. I haven't gone bald from chemo, but I've lost about a quarter to a third of my hair, and what remains is wiry and unruly. My body is weak. I miss running and working out. And so he has compassion on me, even in my sinful vanity and fear of man because of my appearance. I remember the scripture that says Christ's appearance was marred more than any man and his form more than the sons of men. His hair was plucked out. I take comfort knowing that my Savior endured physical marring and he has complete empathy for me. I can trust that he will run at a cry knowing that there is much more physical suffering ahead. Although I do not look forward to it, I know he will be with me. There is an intimacy and fellowship of his sufferings that is beautiful and sweet. He looked to the joy set before him and endured. And I can follow his example because of boy Theo. He will run at my cry for help. I think it's important to remember that the help that Jesus gives is himself. He doesn't always rescue us from our difficult circumstances. He doesn't simply take away our pain. The greatest help he gives is not a change of situation. Rather, he gives himself. He runs at our cry and comforts us with his very presence. I'm also reminded that this was a comfort that Jesus himself did not have. When he was in his greatest suffering, he was forsaken by God his Father, and he endured the anguish all alone. You know, as hard as all of this is for us, I keep reminding myself that it's better than hell. Seriously, I tell myself that every single day, multiple times a day, that this is better than hell. And hell is what I really deserve, because I'm a sinner. I've sinned against God by my words, 
by my actions, and by terrible thoughts in my mind. The Bible says that sin, sin must be punished by death, eternal separation from God. So that's what I really deserve, is eternity in hell. But our God is kind and loving. He gave his only son, Jesus, to suffer in my place, that I might live with him forever. My physical suffering and death is not the worst thing that could happen to me. The worst thing that could happen to me, or anyone, would be eternal separation from God. I'm thankful that God has made a way of salvation and that we can choose to come to him through his Son. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, I would encourage you to talk with someone about that tonight. Um, you can talk with the Cross Life leaders, or the student leaders, or, or Ray, or myself. But please don't leave here tonight without responding to what you've heard. I pray that looking at these five attributes of God that are sustaining me helps you to see what it looks like to Imago Day, to reflect the image of God in your daily life and in time of trial. Remember, that's the purpose for which we were created. And it's only when we take great joy in his person and in his doings in our life that we bring him praise, and he is glorified, and we Imago Dei. I have to tell you, though, that the fullest extent of Imago Dei is yet to come, and it only awaits those who know him. 1 John 3, 2 tells us about it. it says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. Amago Dei. For we shall see him as he is. What a hope. Thank you.